Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. If you'd open up a Bible to John, the 14th chapter, John chapter 14, that's where we want to begin. We'll be in the Bible just a lot this morning, and so you will be benefited tremendously by following along with uh, that and all of the other passages that we'll be considering for these next few minutes. And as you're finding John chapter 14, let me just echo the welcome from earlier. It is great to have what I think is just a really good number in attendance this morning, even with a like a third of the congregation traveling and worshiping elsewhere for fall break this week. We've still got just a really good group assembled here this fine Lord's Day, and I'm so glad that you uh, made the decision to be here with us. I hope you have plans to uh, to be back with us this evening at 6 o'clock, particularly if you're a grandparent. Got some good things that I want to say this evening to grandparents, and really for anybody who's ever had a grandma or a grandpa. So come back tonight at 6 o'clock, and we'll talk about grandparenting from the biblical perspective, because the Bible does have something to say to grandmas and grandpas. However, right now, it is John the 14th chapter where we want to begin. Read with me. These are the words of Jesus. He's talking to His disciples in John 14, and in verse 1, Jesus says, "...let not your hearts be troubled." Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. What about that coming again business? That really fascinates us, doesn't it? In fact, in 1998, a book called Left Behind, written by Tim Jenkins, or Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins, excuse me, it dominated the bestseller list, dominated the USA Today bestseller list, dominated the New York Times bestseller list, not just for weeks, not just for months, but in fact for years, because that book ended up spawning 16 total books in a series ended up selling over 65 million copies worldwide. One well-known evangelical pastor actually said about those books, he said that second only to the Bible, left behind has had more impact on modern Christianity than any other book. And what the left behind book series was, was just another time when the doctrine of premillennialism made an appearance on the public stage, reaping huge profits for its authors. Somebody's maybe asking right now, Josh, prima, prima what? Premillennialism? What's that? That sounds like, that sounds like something you need to be vaccinated for. That sounds like maybe the name of a bacteria that you get when you leave chicken out too long. What's premillennialism? Well, actually premillennialism isn't any of those things. Premillennialism is a complex series of doctrines. It is a way of interpreting the whole Bible with a particular emphasis on the end times and the second coming of Jesus Christ. It is premillennialism that gives us words like the rapture. And it has popularized ideas like the tribulation and the antichrist. It is premillennialism that is responsible for some of the right-wing militias that are uh, evident in our country even today. And it is premillennialism that dominates much of the United States' foreign policy, particularly toward the nation of Israel. If you have friends or if you have relatives who attend or are part of a denominational church, really of any kind... Chances are they know about premillennialism and even greater are the chances 
They believe in premillennialism. But what about you and me? Where are we on this? What exactly is going to happen when Jesus comes again, as He promised His disciples He would do in John 14 and verse 3? What's that going to be like? What's the second coming going to be all about? When will that occur? Can we know when that will occur? Will there be a rapture? What's the end times? What's that going to be like? Well, this morning I want to address some of those kinds of questions as we talk about premillennialism, particularly the problems with premillennialism. What I want to do is I want to contrast the truth of Scripture with this error that is so widely accepted and is so prevalent in the religious world today. That on our part is going to involve some very, very careful thought. And as I said at the outset, it's going to involve lots and lots of Bible. But is there anything that we want to know more about, that we need to know more about, than the second coming of Christ? You know, that's not just a a matter of curiosity or, you know, just kind of a, a passing trivia that we might want to know about. No, that's a matter of vital importance. Thus, this morning, we do need to give some attention to a doctrine that many, many people have been led astray by. We need to talk about that and think about that. What are maybe some things that we could say to our friends and to our loved ones who have bought into this erroneous doctrine, hook, line, and sinker? Let's talk about premillennialism. To do that this morning, we need to just start where premillennialism starts. Let's turn to the book of Revelation. Look in Revelation chapter 20, please. In Revelation chapter 20, here is, there's probably a couple of, important passages to premillennialists, but this is probably the main one. In Revelation chapter 20, here's where the concept of premillennialism is born. In Revelation 20, read with me beginning in verse 1. John writes, Then I saw, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ For a thousand years. Let's just stop right there. Lots of people have long been fascinated by these verses in Revelation chapter 20. What does that mean? What is that all about? Well, let me just begin by saying that the book of Revelation is very, very different from the rest of the books that we have contained in our New Testament. Revelation is a book that uses dramatic word pictures to convey some spiritual truths, but to do that in very unforgettable kinds of tones. It uses figurative language, which means it's not meant to be taken overly literal. For example, just look at what we read there. Are we really to believe, verse 1, that we are speaking of a literal chain that can hold a spirit being? Are we really to believe that? Or verse 2, are we really saying that Satan is a literal physical dragon that is then thrown into a literal physical pit? This is clearly figurative language. These are strong word pictures not to be taken literally. In fact, if we do take this literally, verse 4, then we have some people without heads who are reigning for a thousand years. That's kind of awkward. But of course, 
There have been some people who have just been determined to make this into something very, very literal. And that is where premillennialism begins. It is the belief that there is going to be an actual, literal millennia. That's the word for a thousand years. That there's going to be a literal, millennial reign of Christ. He's coming to this earth. He's going to sit on a literal, physical throne. And He's going to reign for a literal, physical one thousand years. You should know, though, that as we talk about that this morning, that it wasn't always premillennialism. In fact, the belief that started this whole train of thought back in the late 1800s, it actually began as post-millennialism. Leading figures like Jonathan Edwards and Charles Hodge, they taught that Jesus would come at the end of a thousand years, at the end of the millennia, post-millennia, like a post-game interview. Jesus would come at the end. It was the belief that the millennia would be inaugurated by, it would be ushered in, not by Jesus, but by the church, by Christians. Think about that. Think about where the world was in the late 1800s. So much progress was being made in the world. New science, new medicine, new technology, new industry. Missionaries were able to go all over the globe spreading the gospel in new and exciting ways. And so the dominant thinking was was that the world was becoming more and more Christianized. It was just getting better and better all the time. And so the feeling was, was that Christianity was nearing this, this golden age where things are just gonna, they're just gonna get as good as they're ever gonna get. And then it's this thousand years, this thousand years of just really, really good times would be ushered in by the church itself. And then at the end of those thousand years, Jesus would return. Somebody maybe would ask as I talk about that, somebody would say, Josh, well, what exactly happened to that? I've never even heard of post-millennialism. What exactly happened to that kind of thinking? I'll tell you what happened to that kind of thinking. World War I happened to that kind of thinking. Because instead of the world getting better and better and better, especially with science and technology, what science and technology figured out was how to kill more people even faster. That was pretty discouraging for folks. And of course, after World War I, what happened next? The Great Depression. My grandmother lived during the Great Depression. She told me it wasn't all that great. And of course, after the Great Depression, what happened shortly after that? World War II. You see, by the time you got to the 1940s in world history, it was hard to believe that human beings, through their own strength and through their own effort, was going to somehow make this world a better place. It really looked like any minute now, human beings were going to blow the whole world up. And so post-millennialism ended up fading away it gave way to dispensational premillennialism. That's a mouthful. What exactly does that mean? Well, the dispensational part means that you can divide world history into seven dispensations. And in those seven different time frames or ages, you can somehow understand the entire working of God. Dispensational premillennialists, they believe that we are now in the sixth of those ages, the gospel age, the church age, and that the seventh age, the millennia, the thousand years, that it is about to come. Instead of believing that human beings are going to bring about that golden age, what dispensational premillennialists believe is that this golden age is going to be brought in by Jesus. Jesus is going to usher this in. He'll inaugurate that thousand year reign. He'll make all things good. He'll do what human beings cannot do. So Jesus will come before the millennia begins, hence pre-millennialism. 
And this system is largely credited to John Darby for kind of its basic structure and framework. While notable preachers like Billy Sunday and Dwight Moody, they ended up popularizing it from pulpits all over the land. And then guys like Charles Ryrie of the Ryrie Study Bible and James Schofield of the Schofield Study Bible. You may even own a copy of a Schofield Study Bible. They were able to help push that doctrine through those study Bibles. They were able to push that doctrine into even more mainstream acceptance. Premillennialism today, here we are in 2016, and it's just taught everywhere. It's just practiced everywhere. It's on the radio. It's on television. It's in books like those Left Behind books. It's even in Hollywood productions and in movies. Lots of people believe in, even if they can't say that mouthful of words, dispensational premillennialism, lots of people believe it. And I want to talk about that. In fact, the remainder of our time this morning needs to be devoted to breaking down the doctrine of premillennialism. And so what I did is I went to a premillennial website and I downloaded this chart so that we would all understand what premillennialism is. Wow. Hope you packed a lunch. Actually, on second thought, I hope you packed dinner. That's kind of complicated, isn't it? There's all kinds of stuff going on there. And that's actually one of the easier kind of charts that I was able to find online. All kinds of stuff going on up there. What in the world is that all about? Well, let me see if maybe I can break that down into just a few key points and a few key ideas. The focal point of premillennialism all centers around the physical nation of Israel. It is the belief that God has made promises to the Israelis, to the Israelite nation which he has yet to fulfill, but that he most certainly will. Particularly, I'm talking about the land promise. That Israel is promised that prime real estate over in Palestine, and God's going to make double sure that they get that land. That goes on further to talk about how the kingdom of Christ has not yet been established. That Jesus came here to earth the first time. He came to be a king. He came to reign on a literal throne. But he failed. He was rejected and he was crucified by men. And so God hastily established, he threw together the church as kind of a stopgap measure. Some premillennialists, they even talk about how we're in the great parentheses, that right now we're in the, in the parentheses, that is we're waiting until the time when God sends Jesus again. God's kind of retooling and getting things, you know, back in order so that Jesus can get it right this second time around. But until that happens, what you can expect, premillennialists say, is you can expect that the world, the world's just going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. Premillennialists are very much the opposite of postmillennialists. Postmillennialists were very, very optimistic. They're the ones who said the world's getting better and better and better all the time. Premillennialists, though, are very, very pessimistic. They're the ones who look around and they say the world's just getting worse and worse and worse all the time. In fact, they almost seem to just kind of revel in signs, signs of bad things happening in the world. Drought, famine, violence, murder, war, persecution, all this horrible stuff that's happening in the world. Those are just signs that we're getting closer and closer to the end. And when things are just about as bad as they possibly can get, poof, then the rapture. The rapture will occur. What exactly is the rapture? Well, the rapture is the idea that God is going to mysteriously and He's going to invisibly take all the Christians off of the earth. Just going to snatch them away, just right out of their own boots and right out of their own clothes. That the church, God's church, is going to be removed from this 
physical planet. And when the church is removed from this planet, then, then comes the tribulation. Tribulation will break out. A terrible time of seven years when things are going to be just as awful as they possibly can be. And that is the whole premise behind those Left Behind books, if you've ever read them or seen any of the movies. That Christians, they're raptured off of this earth while everybody else is left here to deal with the tribulation. This horrible time of seven years of just all kinds of bad things happening. That's when the Antichrist is going to be revealed and there'll be this push toward one world religion. At the end of the seven years though, Jesus will return again, again. There will be this really big war known as the War of Armageddon, the Battle of Armageddon. At that time, the Jews will all be converted in mass. Just seeing Jesus will cause Jews to believe in Jesus and to obey the gospel. Jesus will then defeat the devil in the Battle of Armageddon. And then the millennia will begin. This golden age when the Jewish nation, they're going to reign and rule with Jesus once again. Gentiles, that would probably include most of us, we will then be subservient to the Jews. The temple will be restored along with the law of Moses and the curse on nature will be reversed. At the end of that thousand years, the devil the devil will be released for a very short time at which time the wicked dead will then be raised and they will be judged and along with the devil they will be cast into the lake of fire for all of eternity. At that point, eternity will commence. Now, that was kind of a sped up version and maybe a little bit of a thumbnail sketch of that big giant chart that I had on the screen a moment ago. And in some ways that might be a little bit of an oversimplification of the doctrine of premillennialism, but I do think that it hits on all of the key major talking points of premillennialism. Having said all of that, and recognizing that premillennialism is a very, very popular way of looking at the Bible, it's a popular way of looking at the end times, I should tell you this morning, there's just some real problems there. There's some really big problems with all of that. Let's just see what Scripture has to say about all of this. First and foremost, you need to know, thinking about Israel, and Israel being kind of the focal point of all of the premillennialist idea, you need to know first and foremost that all of God's promises to Israel have absolutely been fulfilled. Did God make promises to Israel? Yes, He did. Look in the book of Genesis, please. I'll show you that in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, let's go all the way back to when those promises were first made. The promises that were made by God to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, God says this to Abraham. And in fact, these are promises that would be for his descendants as well. In Genesis 12 and in verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is a major pivot point in Bible history. These promises that God makes to Abraham and to his descendants afterwards. And yes, amongst those promises is the promised land. In fact, dropping down to verse 7. God says there, the Lord appeared to Abraham and he said, To your offspring... I will give this land. Now, this is not the only place where those promises are made in Scripture. In fact, if you continue reading in the book of Genesis, you'll see those promises repeated again and again and again to Isaac and to Jacob and to all of those descendants. They're repeated numerous times in the Bible. But I need you to now turn to the book of Joshua, if you will, in Joshua chapter 21. 
In Joshua 21, the Israelites have now come into the land of Canaan and the conquest is complete. The question is, did God fail in His promises that He made to Abraham? Joshua chapter 21, look in verse 43. In Joshua 21 and verse 43, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that He swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it and they settled there. Drop down to verse 45. Not one word of the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Would you turn over a page to Joshua 23 in case the point wasn't made clear enough there? In Joshua chapter 23, Joshua now speaks to the people and he reiterates those very ideas. In Joshua 23, in verse 14, Joshua says, And now I am about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come past for you. Not one of them has failed. The Bible says that God made good on His promises to Israel. God never fails and He did not fail to Israel in any way. I want you to just note the care that is taken by Scripture to say not once but twice that Israel received every bit of land, every single promise that God made, it was fulfilled. Now usually whenever you point that out to a premillennialist, what they'll say is they'll say, well yeah, God gave them the land, but, well, but then they lost the land. At which point we need to say, yep, and that's exactly what the Bible said would happen. Would you look in Deuteronomy chapter 30? In Deuteronomy chapter 30, this is before Moses died, And Moses is talking to the people, addressing them one final time. And he reminds them in Deuteronomy 30 that God's promises are conditional. And that if they are to remain in that land, they must serve the Lord. In Deuteronomy 30, look in verse 19. Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, Moses says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore choose life that you and your offspring may live. Loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice, holding fast to Him, for He is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. Those promises that God made were never unconditional. Those promises were fulfilled. God did His part. Israel did not do their part. They lost the land. That's not God's fault. And all of that is to say, God owes Israel nothing. I don't care what you hear on the evening news. I don't care what anybody else says to you. God owes Israel not one thing. In fact, it's not even important today if you're a Jew or if you're a Gentile. Look with me in the New Testament, in the book of Galatians now. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul tells us here that your Jewish ancestry or your Gentile ancestry, that doesn't matter anymore. doesn't matter who you're related to. In Galatians chapter 3, look in verse 25. In Galatians 3 and verse 25, Paul says, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Verse 26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You see, the time now is to be a spiritual Israelite, not a physical Israelite. God owes Israel not one thing. 
Furthermore, as we talk about premillennialism, we should note that Jesus is not coming to establish an earthly kingdom because Jesus' kingdom exists right now. Look at me in the book of Mark, please, in Mark chapter 9. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus so says. In Mark chapter 9 and in verse 1, Jesus is speaking to His disciples, and He says to them in Mark 9 and verse 1, He says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. We need to ask ourselves right now, did Jesus get it wrong? Did Jesus just miss it here? We need to ask ourselves, if Jesus came to establish a physical kingdom and that He failed the first time that He tried to do that, and so now we're here in this the church age, we're in the parentheses, then who's to say that when Jesus comes the next time that He, that he won't fail again? And maybe even the larger question to ask is, is, what is this business of saying that Jesus failed? Well, I don't know about you, but I find that to be terribly offensive. And I'll tell you this, the Bible doesn't know anything about Jesus failing. Look in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, this is the conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus. And Jesus talks with Nicodemus about the kingdom being something that Nicodemus would have the opportunity to be a part of in his lifetime. In John chapter 3, I'm looking here at verse 3. In John 3 verse 3, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again... He cannot see the kingdom of God. You know, if the kingdom hadn't come, if the kingdom wasn't going to come in Nicodemus' lifetime, why would Jesus say this to Nicodemus? He's trying to taunt him a little bit. Oh, look at what you're not going to get to have. No, look at verse 5. Jesus answered and said again, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus seems to be talking here about a kingdom that was going to come soon. In fact, as Mark 9 verse 1 said, there were some living in the first century who would not taste death until they saw that kingdom come with power. And of course, the truth of the matter is, Jesus did not fail. Jesus did not get it wrong. Look in Colossians 1 now. In Colossians chapter 1, this is just one of many, many passages that talk about the kingdom as a present reality. You're talking about this with your friend. You're wanting to find a passage. This is the one I would suggest going to. Colossians chapter 1, look in verse 13. In Colossians 1 and in verse 13, Paul writes that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, saying that the kingdom does not presently exist... That's a real problem. Because according to Colossians chapter 1, that would mean that we're still in the domain of darkness. That would mean that we are still in our sins and that we do not have forgiveness. But thanks be to God, we do have forgiveness. We can be delivered from the domain of darkness because the kingdom of Christ exists right now. In fact, much of this confusion about the kingdom comes from a misunderstanding that Christ's kingdom is not a physical kingdom, that it is a spiritual kingdom. Look in John the 18th chapter, please. In John chapter 18, this is not a new misunderstanding. Because even the Jews in Jesus' day, they misunderstood about this. They were looking for a physical kingdom. But look what Jesus says. As He answers Pilate in John 18 and in verse 36, 
Jesus answers and says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Jesus came to establish something much better than a physical kingdom. He came to establish a spiritual kingdom. It is a kingdom that is not bound by time or space or geography. It is a kingdom that is composed of saved people, of Christians. Christians who are bowing to His reign, to His rule, and to His authority. It is a kingdom where the throne is not in Jerusalem. The throne is in heaven. And the good news about all of that is that you can be a part of that kingdom right now. Of course, one of the major problems with premillennialism, though, is that the Bible... The Bible doesn't teach that next thing in the scheme. The Bible doesn't teach the rapture. The rapture is a really critical component in the whole premillennialism doctrine. And it is central to the idea of premillennialism. And central to the rapture is the idea of there being two separate resurrections. That there will be this resurrection of the righteous dead, who along with the righteous living, they're going to be snatched out of their shoes and they're going to be just taken straight up into heaven. But then much later in the scheme, a thousand and seven years later to be precise, there's going to be this second resurrection, the resurrection of the wicked dead, where they'll be judged and then eternity will begin. Well, look in John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, let's just let Jesus talk here. And let's see, does Jesus say anything about this idea of being two big separate resurrections happening in you know completely different times and spaces? Well, in John 5, Jesus sets the record straight. In John 5 and in verse 28, Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice. And they'll come out. Those who've done good to the resurrection of life, those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus says there'll be just one calling when all who are in the tombs, they will respond. They will all come forth from the grave responding to the voice of the Lord. In fact, the Bible goes on to tell us that there's not going to be anything secret about the coming of the Lord. That's part of the rapture idea. That the Lord's going to come visibly, mysteriously. People aren't even going to know that they're going to be snatched away. But the Bible doesn't know anything about that. Look with me in 1 Thessalonians, please. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul addresses some questions and some misunderstandings that folks had about the return of Jesus. And he says the following in 1 Thessalonians 4 and in verse 16. In 1 Thessalonians 4 and in verse 16, Paul says, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. Let me ask you, what about that sounds like it's going to be invisible and it's going to be a secret? That don't seem to me like it's going to be a secret. That's going to be loud. That's going to be audible. No one's going to miss that. In fact, we get some more details. Turn over to 2 Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, look in verse 7. In 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 7, Paul says that when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus... You see, you don't need to worry that you're somehow going to miss the coming of Jesus. Everybody's going to see it. Everybody's going to hear it. Everybody's going to know the Lord has returned. You know, maybe the most important thing that I need to say about all of this this morning pertains to the book of Revelation where premillennialism begins. I need to just say that the book of Revelation 
is not meant to be used as a guide to current events in world news today. Premillennialists love to say that they take the Bible literally as if somehow the rest of us do not. But then they go to books like Ezekiel and Daniel and Revelation and they stitch all that stuff together to produce all kinds of amazing and grandiose themes and theories and doctrines, all of which just plumb perfectly with what we see on the evening news and the latest current events. Don't be buffaloed by any of that. You know, I don't know everything about the book of Revelation, but I think I can show you maybe a couple of verses that really help us to understand the book a little bit better. Look at the very beginning of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 1. In Revelation 1, just notice how this interesting and unique book begins. In Revelation chapter 1, look in verse 1. In Revelation 1 and verse 1, John says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show to His servants, notice this, the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending His angel to His servant John, who bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that He saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. Notice this. For the time is near. Now the question is, who's He talking about here? John's already said that this is going to be in regards to some events that will soon take place. Some events that are near. Who's he talking about though? Verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. The audience for the book of Revelation was to Christians in first century times. It was written to Christians who were being persecuted for their faith. Christians who were dying for the very cause of Christ. You think about this. How would it encourage you to be a Christian living in the first century world? How would it encourage you if you got a letter that said that 2,000 years from now, the nation of Israel is going to be reborn into the land of Palestine, and that maybe some 60 or 70 years later there's going to be this rapture that's going to take place? How's that going to encourage you in your present circumstances? Why would you be interested in that at all? Why would you be interested in the world events from 2,000 years downtime? Saddam Hussein, the Gulf War, the fall of communism. How does that help you at all in your Christian walk? It doesn't. The book of Revelation is not written about events that's going to happen thousands and thousands of years later. It's about things that would happen soon, John says. Shortly. John says. It was written to encourage first century Christians to hang on, to persevere, to stick with it a little while longer because some amazing things were about to happen in their world and in their lifetime. Say all of that just to reiterate. Revelation is not meant to be a guide to our world events today. When we read the book of Revelation, the way that I've always put it, is we need to realize that we are reading someone else's mail. We need to keep that in mind when we open up this book. And while I may not be able to explain everything about the book of Revelation, I know this. I know that I need to constrain whatever I may think about the book of Revelation by what it says at the very outset, right there in verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. That this is a message to New Testament people. And it is about the things that are going to happen in the New Testament world and that those things would happen soon. Now, Having shared with you some of the very obvious flaws to me that I see in the doctrine of premillennialism, 
Somebody would maybe then ask, well, Josh, well, what exactly is going to happen in the end? And I think I can give you just a couple of very quick ideas that will help us to understand about the end and will encourage us to get ready for the end. First of all, what about that date business? If you look at the chart for premillennialism, you can actually pinpoint when Jesus is going to return. And so when is Jesus going to come again? Well, according to the Bible, nobody knows. Nobody knows when Jesus is going to come again. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul addresses this idea of trying to set a date or forecasting the date of Christ's return when he says in verse 1, 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 1, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Paul says that nobody can know when the Lord is going to return. It will be like a thief in the night. And as soon as somebody says they can start pinpointing and setting a date, and they start saying things like, oh, there's all these signs happening, and when this sign happens, and this sign happens, and this sign happens, all we can know, we can know exactly when Jesus is going to return. What they're doing is they're contradicting exactly what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5. And just think about this, just think about this practically speaking. If there really were signs that we could look for that would help us to know exactly when Jesus is going to return, what would people do? You know what people would do. People would live however they wanted to live. They'd live in sin. They'd live in wickedness right up until that final moment, maybe to the last hour. And then they'd make that rush right there at the end zone to obey the Lord and do what's right. That idea, of course, runs entirely counter to the idea of Christianity in the Bible. And it flies in the face of all of those times where Jesus Himself said, Watch! Watch, for you know neither the day nor the hour when the Son of Man comes. Furthermore, when Jesus returns, He is going to do some stuff. When He returns, He will judge both the living and the dead. All people will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. And at that time, all people will receive either the sentence of eternal punishment or the reward of eternal life, Matthew 25 talks about. And that means at that moment, eternity will commence. Heaven and hell for us will begin. And at that time, this earth, this earth that premillennialists say that Jesus is going to come, He's going to sit on a throne on this earth and He's going to reign for a thousand years, that's not possible. Because Second Peter chapter 3, verses 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13 talks about how this earth, this universe, this physical realm, it'll be destroyed. There'll be nothing here for anyone to be walking around, let alone reigning on or ruling on. That means there'll be no thousand year reign in Jerusalem. There'll be no literal physical throne of David. There'll be no kingdom to be set up here on planet earth because this earth and the works that are done on it, according to Peter, it will be burned up. Now, my purpose this morning has been to to try and educate and to warn us about the error of premillennialism. But can I close with one more idea, one other very notable side effect of premillennialism? And maybe this is even the reason that premillennialism is such a popular idea. Premillennialism offers people two chances. Premillennialism offers people two chances to get right with the Lord. You can either A, live as a Christian now, 
and you'll be raptured and you'll get to go to heaven and you'll miss all the tribulation. Or you can live however you want to live right now, live in sin, live it up in the world, and then after the tribulation, you get that second chance to get right with the Lord and then reign with Him during the millennia, etc., etc. With premillennialism, you get two chances. It's very different from what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that you get just one chance. The Bible teaches that you get this life, this present moment. That there'll be no second opportunities. There'll be no rapture or tribulation to somehow force people into conversion. You decide to follow Jesus now knowing that at any minute the skies could rip apart, angels could come pouring out, and Jesus could return. You could be judged. You obey the gospel. You follow Jesus now knowing that at any moment you could die and you go meet the Lord then. You decide to follow Jesus, obey the gospel, serve Him and follow Him now knowing that this chance, this moment, this is all that we have. And so with that in mind, we extend the invitation of our Lord Jesus Christ. We invite you to get ready. To get ready not for some mythical rapture or to get ready for seven years of tribulation and the Antichrist and all that. No, we're inviting you, Jesus is inviting you to serve Him right now. And the good news is, you can be in that kingdom right now. If you'll repent of your sins. If you'll be baptized into Christ for the remission of those sins, as Acts 2 and verse 38 instructs, you can be ready to meet the Lord Right now. What we're doing is we're encouraging you to be a child of God. A Christian. One that will follow the Scriptures, not some man-made system or some man-made doctrine. If we can help you to get ready to be a Christian, or maybe we can help you to be a better Christian, brother or sister, And this is your moment and this is your time. Would you make your way down front? Make those wishes known? Do that right now while we stand and while we sing.